SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. This time we are continuing our look at the Critters saga with Critters 2, the main course, directed by Mick Garris, released in 1988, uh, written by David Twohey and Mick Garris, uh, starring a lot of the people from the first film, except for M. Emmett Walsh, uh, which is too bad. Um, with me is Thrasher. Okay, would you like a moose shake with that? And Alex. I am the Critters 2 robot. There was no robot in Critters 2. Decommissioned. (laughs) Happy birthday, Polly. That's right. Sometime sometime this year we're supposed to get the new cut of Rocky 4, which has like a pretty ridiculous name to it. I'll have to look that up later. Um, Anyhow, Critters 2, the main chorus. Yeah, this one... I had a really weird experience, uh, not watching this film necessarily, but watching back-to-back the Siskel and Ebert reviews, uh, that being, uh, younger listeners might not know, uh, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were these these film critics that were had an extremely popular nationally syndicated show where if they gave a movie two thumbs up, that could spell life or death for the movie's box office, especially if it was a small independent film. Um, anyhow, they gave Critters... One, two thumbs up. And Critters 2, they gave two thumbs down. But then their reasoning was kind of dumb. They were, because I don't think the two films are are terribly different, but they said Critters 2, like the special effects look a lot worse. And I I don't think that's the case. I I do think maybe what they were getting at, because a lot of the Critters 2 takes place in daytime, it makes the effects more obvious, perhaps. Well, the puppets look more like puppets because you see them in full lighting. Yes. And the tone's a little different. It's a little more tongue-in-cheeky, too. But that's usually what they go for, because I remember, I think critics are more warm on Gremlins 2 more than Gremlins 1, I think, right? Nowadays, at the time, I'm not sure. Um, but that, that's a good point, yeah. I, I would say Critters 2 is not as madcap as, as Critters 1, but that's a good comparison. I would and, argue it is more madcap than Critters 1. <laughs> Sorry, it's not more Madcap than Critters Two than Gremlins Two. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. But, There's no um, musical numbers. <laughs> yeah, interestingly, you know, this is Mick Garris's. Uh, we've talked about him some on the show before. This is his theatrical debut. Uh, before that, he did a, a feature for Disney Channel called Fuzz Bucket, and he also was a, was a story editor for Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories. Got to direct an episode of that as well, I believe. And uh, he's nowadays, you know. In the 90s, he was perhaps best well-known for doing a lot of Stephen King miniseries, like the original version of The Stand, uh, and uh, infamously the version of The Shining with Stephen Weber that Stephen King wanted to make because he hated the Kubrick Shining for some, because uh, it wasn't faithful, among other reasons. Um, Sleepwalkers, that was a big one. Yeah, no, that that was, yeah, he did that shortly after this, you know, so he had a, a big Stephen King uh, thing going on, but he's also done his own stuff here and there. I think also in, in the, the early 2000s, Masters of Horror, a pretty neat uh, two season show that he created where he had, you know, uh, people like Toby Hooper and uh, oh, Joe Dante, Joe Dante, uh, all, yeah. all kinds of people. I can't, I mean, my mind's blanking right now. John Landis, right, you know, doing the, these kind of horror films. On a lower budget for and a short time. Psycho 4, The Beginning. What was that? Don't forget, Psycho 4, The Beginning. That's right. Yeah, we talked on not that long ago about Psycho 4, which was also done for Showtime, as it turns out. But yeah, so, I mean, that's really... He, he said quite a good career recently came out with something called Nightmare Cinema, which was sort of a more theatrical version of the um, anthology movie idea. So maybe that'll be a TV show. Uh, down the line, which Joe Dante worked on that as well. But anyhow, we're talking about Critters 2, the main course. And, um, 
Yeah, and on Twitter here and there, Mick Garris has admitted, uh, also on his podcast, Postmortem, um, Critters 2 is the most difficult shoot of his career so far. Really? Just because they didn't have that many money. They didn't have that much money, and it was all practical effects. And you're working like 20-hour days and trying to figure out how to... This is It has a much bigger scale than the first Critters, right? Well, it's still it's still confined to the same small town, but they 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 move around the small town much further, and we get a much better sense of of sort of the space there. It's not it's not all just focusing on the farmhouse. Yeah, you know, the budget for the first one was like three, according to Box Office Mojo, about three million. The budget for Critters Two was about four million. In this one, they released theatrically. It was going to be direct video originally, and uh, they did theatrically because the preview screenings were so enthusiastic. But it it this one you know did not make its money back uh, domestically. Um, made about three point eight million in the in the U.S. Um, and then the other ones tended to be direct to video after this. So maybe this should have been direct to video to begin with. That all being said, you know I don't know. It it does have a bigger scope. It uses the the widescreen framing well. I think. It's interesting that this didn't do so well because, I mean, like, I feel like Critters 1 is not a movie people are going to take so seriously that they would want the follow-up to it to be, like, a serious, you know what I mean? Like a, like a, like a yeah. dead So, like, a little more tongue-in-cheek, having a little more sense of humor seems like the natural progression. And the fact that that didn't really resonate is so weird to me because I, I think it works quite well. Well, this this is like this is practically with with the with not just the 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 additional humor, but the style of humor in this film. It is almost the sequel that Jim Wynorski would have made if he had been handed the reins. Yeah, it's a real well, Jim Wynorskian feel to it. And looking at this with its release in the United States is quite odd. Um, I mean, the first one came out in '86. This one came out two years later in '88. But they both came out in April, which is not when you expect a movie like this to come out. You would think. <laughs> Perhaps maybe May or August or, or you know, October. Thanksgiving, dude. Well, oh, sure. Yeah, with all the eating. I mean, this, you know, it, it is Easter themed in Critters 2. Very true. It is set on Easter Sunday. As this lazy poster on Wikipedia says, get ready for seconds. They're back. It's that same key artwork from the first one, but he's holding the number two that's shiny. Um, but the more famous uh, art is the cover of the videotapes that haunted all our collective dreams, which is the big critters ball that you get at the end of the film. Oh yeah. (laughs) Damn cool. I'm a bit surprised so much of the cast carry forward into that, into this one. Do you think that was necessary or. I don't know if it's necessary, but it does help. And I really like, we like, we don't get M Emmett Walsh back, but we do get Barry Corbin playing the same character. So. My thing, I mean, you, I've gone on about this quite a bit, but um, a big Western fan, and I feel like he is doing a really good, maybe not good, he's doing a very uh, over Ben <laughs> Johnson impression. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If you watch some of the later Ben Johnson films, like the like the pseudo-horror films he do, like did with the, the Evictors and the Town That Dreaded Sundown, yeah, he's doing a weird Ben Johnson thing. And, I mean, it kind of works, whatever. It seems to... I was delighted to see uh, Eddie Deason in here. Who, yeah. He, he's an actor. He he hits one note, but God bless him. He does it so... He knows what he's doing every time. And as, as the manager of the Hungry Heifer <laughs> uh, thing, he's like, oh, would you like your burger here? Oh, would you like a bucket of burgers? Okay. <laughs> I mean, he's like... He should have been in Revenge of the Nerds. Like, why wasn't Eddie Deason in Revenge of the Nerds? Okay. He is yeah. too much of a class act for that movie. That's why. Yeah. Do you ever see um, I Want to Hold Your Hand? No, no. That's one of the first Zemeckis films, right? It's like a Beatles fan thing. And he is like, he's the Beatle nerd. He knows every fact about the Beatles that you could ever know. It's too funny. I bet. George Harrison's head. And he's perfect. He's so perfect. Yeah, Yeah, Eddie Deason had some health problems recently, but it seems like he's doing better, so... Yeah, actually, I think before, right before he had his surgery, he recorded an episode of the Gilbert Godfrey Amazing Colossal Podcast. It's well worth listening. Eddie Deason has had this amazing career as a character actor and as a voice actor. Um, and the thing, the thing is, he's not just a guy who talks like this. Like he can actually act. If you want to hear Eddie Deason act. If you can find it, there's an animated series from the mid-90s called Duckman, starring Jason Alexander as mm, a duck sure. detective. Yeah. Uh, and 
Eddie Deason has a reoccurring role as this stand-up comedian, Iggy Catalpa. And the whole idea is Iggy Catalpa is a Finch comedian, but he makes a point of not telling like offensive and hurtful jokes. It's a very sort of gentle, it's a very gentle uh, sort of comedy. Like the, the kind of jokes you might hear, the blandest of the jokes you might hear on Prairie Home Companion or the kind of jokes he tells. But he actually has some depth to the character that he brings out. Like it's really, it's really nice. Right, no, and I mean, Duckman, that's something, the look of it was so kind of grungy, but it was when, you know, the, the Simpsons was fairly new and everyone was trying to do an animated series. I'm, I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did, but at the same time I'm delighted because it, it does look like one of those indie black and white comics like Milk and Cheese. Well, it was or... based on. Oh, was it based on a comic? I had no idea. Okay. Yeah, it was based on on a on a comic called The Duckman, uh, and mm. that I've actually I've 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 actually got the reprint of it. It's really delightful. Like it really like prefigures the show uh, wonderfully. But yeah, it's 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 an interesting relic from the night from the nineties. Uh, and be prepared for the last episode because the the last episode. Is basically a, a the the last episode, it, like okay. So when, I was so frustrated when I saw the last episode because the last episode is not only a cliffhanger, it's a cliffhanger contingent on a reveal that makes the base premise of the show a lie. Uh, so like it recontextualizes all four seasons of the show. Uh. And the more I see that, because they did get screwed over, like the last season when it aired didn't air like in its regular uh, Saturday night time slot. I believe it aired like Sunday Sunday mornings at 1.30 a.m. for some reason. And that final episode, I feel like that was done. To, I think they knew it was the last episode. So they wanted to do a last episode that made the network look like, look like assholes <laughs> for not mm -hmm. letting them wrap up this impossible cliffhanger. Oh, and Tim Curry's in it too. But nice. anyway, Critters too. Yeah, Critters too. It's it really struck me. I mean, you mentioned the Western thing, Alex, and the way it's it's shot, and it's this, you know, kind of homey town, but with the big main street, and you get to know where people are, you get to know the characters. It does feel like a western in a weird kind of way, uh, visually. And uh, a part of me also wonders what the original David Twohey script was like, because he was quoted in a later issue of Starlog magazine saying, Critters 2, I don't like being featured on my resume. Mm. And he specifically called it out, so I wonder if there's some... Because uh... Mick Garris is a writer as well as a director, and he he did a, enough of a pass to get writing credit. And um, um, also, too, like, uh, the very... You don't think of critters being a western so much, but like the conceit kind of is. You've got bounty hunters traveling into, you know, hunting things down. Yes. Down, yeah. blah, blah. But this one definitely leans into it a bit more, and I think it's all the better off for it. Sure. I mean, you got the eggs where he left off from the other film, but it's also near Easter, as it turns out, and you get a lot of mistaken egg jokes <laughs> on other things. You, you get some blood in there. I mean, this was PG-13. Uh, the last one was also PG-13. But this one, you get some weird uh, nudity, in a way. You get kind of a running gag with the bounty hunter changing what they look like. Yeah, there's a, there's a scene. I, I love how this movie sets everything up, because there's this sort of sleaze bag who trades the critter eggs for like some beer and some old playboys. And mm. one of the old playboys falls out of his truck. And later when the bounty hunters get back to earth, uh, Lee, the bounty hunter picks up the playboy and he sees the centerfold. And so that's who he turns into. He turns into the centerfold, but when he transforms, he has a staple in his navel. That he has to take out. Yeah. That's a, that's a funny joke. Um, and it also makes like, it makes the nudity, the whole like, transformation thing makes like the nudity seem like not very exploitative or like gratuitous. Like it's just funny and kind of playful and weird, you know? What's well, that? It's it, it, yeah. And as a matter of fact too, you see like the breasts like expand and they kind of reverse it later. Whoops. Kind of reverse it later when they, they go into a different character. Yeah. It, Silly, you know. I can yeah. Oh, and so, uh, and we, and with this one, it begins in outer space. We get like, you know, we get the bounty hunters doing some hunting, but they're all in masks. And when, after they kill this, this alien bug monster, the masks come off. One of the bounty hunters is Charlie. Turns out he left with them after the first film. And now he's uh, living a life among the stars. But you can still tell he's still, yeah, like he's not a total, like, 
you know, fucking he he didn't go from like Linda Hamilton, Terminator One, Terminator Two. Like he's still Charlie. Yeah. You know, he's still a little nervy and kind of like, oh, you know. Oh, and something that jumped out at me is that, is that when they bring the alien back, they just cut off the alien's head and they put it on this big like wall freezer with all these other alien heads. And I thought, oh yeah, that's a wonderful reference to to Predator Two, which won't come out for another two years. Yeah. That, that's a fun scene to hit the pause button on and, and kind of zoom in or whatever if your remote can do that because uh, there's a lot of creative design stuffed in there and it's that you pick up from an adventure you haven't quite seen what's going on but then you I, like you get a kind of mission briefing where it's like actually we detect more of the krites on earth and they must be fully destroyed it, 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 it's a it's a forced way to do things but you want to get the plot moving mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it's a real shift in tone because, like I said, in the first film, the the eight critters, they are specifically criminals who were tried and convicted, and that's why they were going to the prison asteroid. But at this point, the Galactic Council has decided, no, fuck it, we're just going to wipe out the whole species. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I forgot to mention this, this uh, last week, but in in critters, uh, the uh, the first one in the beginning. You have this alien kind of giving the plot dumps, and he has this neat kind of snake thing behind his head. He almost looks like what I'd imagine the god emperor of Dune to look like had they made that in the 80s. Kind of a wormy human person. But with the, yeah, this stuff in Critters 2, you're trying to return everyone to the same town, and you have the same actors, more or less, as we mentioned. But Scott Grimes, who plays Brad Brown, he has more of a lead part in this, and uh, even though it's in the 80s, I, I would argue he looks a bit more like the, the 90s, where he's really shot up in height in the past few years, uh, since the first one. And he has uh, feathered hair, and he has the earring in the one ear, which was pretty unusual in the late 80s, I think. He, he's forward-looking, but mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of just fun, like, implied storytelling, because, like, he's, he's on this bus, and he's the only person on the bus... And, like, the bus driver's talking about, how, oh, yeah, there's this family, the Browns. They ruined the town by saying there were these monsters. Uh, and and you, come to fi- the impl- you come to find out that apparently after the events of the first movie, his entire family had to leave town uh, because of, because I guess they wouldn't stop talking about the critters. Uh, and so now he's coming back to spend the Easter weekend with his grandmother who still lives there. And it's like it's like big news. Like, oh yeah, the kid who talked about aliens. Like, I I love that the entire town, even though the entire town witnessed an alien attack and got shot up by alien bounty hunters, the whole town has just kind of agreed, let's never speak of this again. We don't know what happened. We'll just, just say it was something bad and we'll never look into it. Yeah, I also um I, I love that. That's perfect sequel writing. And um <laughs> I also, I like the casting. I like that Scott Grimes is back, but I also like the romance with, um, is it Leanne Kurt? No, with, uh, I forget her name, but, um, because it's like that perfect level of, like, girls develop a little bit faster than boys. So, you know, she's a little bit taller. He's a little bit younger, you know, like, when he's trying to stand up for her at the diner, you know, you see him standing on his tippy toes being like, I know, karate. And it's like, he knows he's in over his head, but he's trying to do the right thing. Like, the 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 Scott Grimes character, I think they develop quite uh, quite nicely here. No, and that kind of flirtation, the romance, to me, it feels real. It's not, like, overdone like a soap opera. It's not trying to be kind of kind of scummy. Like, in a lot of 80s movies, you, there'd be, you know, a lot of other 80s horror movies, there'd be a scene where the girl loses her top somehow, and he sees right. it. And it's like, oh, my God, boobies. Ooh. You know, like, they, they, they have a bit of restraint um i think which which is nice and it gives his character more to do than to just be a pyromaniac kid from the original and they even well, it, too, yeah, they like, act like kids and that's what's so nice about yeah. this didn't they reference yeah. that too? they're like yeah didn't used to like blow up mailboxes and he's like uh anyway <laughs> yeah yeah they it i do like this movie i think more than the first i think it has better pacing it kind of keeps the plot moving and yet you have like this weird um Kind of, I don't know if it's like gore, but you certainly see more blood, I think, than the first one with the the scene with the Easter Bunny, where the the baby. Oh, the vacuum cleaner thing is my litter machine running. Um, oh, never mind. And it's done, but yeah. Uh, How the sausage is made. Uh huh. So I mean, but um, you know, you have the scene with the Easter Bunny. And the, the little crate, uh, critter guy goes up his leg and is chomping on his crotch, is what I'm imagining. And he's all bloody, and he, he bursts through 
the uh, stained glass of the church while they're having the, an Easter service. In the middle of the service. <laughs> right. And you have, you know, the Easter with the bunnies. That's a sign of fertility. And you also have rebirth, right, with the with the Easter, with, with uh, Jesus Christ coming back to life. And you have these critters coming back to life in the forms of these eggs. I mean, there's a lot of um, symbolism and things going on. Well, it was one thing I was surprised didn't get taken too much further because so so it turns out the the Browns farm it's not just those four critter eggs we saw there's dozens of critter eggs uh, yeah. and uh, this you know local scumbag uh, he sells them to this like sort of antique and oddments dealer for you know the beer and, and the playboys and then he <laughs> sells them to uh, he sells them uh, to Brad's grandmother to use as like Easter eggs and one thing they don't play up as much as you would think is what happens when the kids take these painted eggs home. We only really get two scenes that deal with that. And in both cases, the baby critter gets stomped on and killed before it can really threaten anybody. Although I will say the scene where the, where the, the girl is like, is asleep and like the baby critter is running around under her bed and like her arm or her leg keeps like flopping over and the critter keeps trying to bite it. There was some tension there. Cause like I hadn't seen this in a while and there was this part of me that's like, well, this, this film might be messed up enough to have the critter eat a kid. Cool. Right. Yeah. It, I, I kind of wish they would have, but you, you do get, I mean, I looked at the Hungry Heifer thing. They returned to it a few times. It's this fast food chain in the film. And it made me think of like, oh, Kevin Smith must have been thinking of this when he did movies in Dogma. And <laughs> and in the one we talked about not that long ago, Jay and Silent Bob reboot, right? Because yeah. it, ha it has its own theme song, um, which is, uh, it was like written and, uh, and sung by uh, Mick Garris's wife. Yeah. Who I believe um, was also the alien that gives them their mission. I think you're right. And she also was the scary woman in the bathtub in his version of The Shining. Um, and what's her name? Why doesn't it say this on Wikipedia? Bad Wikipedia. It's not on there. But anyhow. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's not in his Wikipedia page, which is kind of odd. Anyhow, I said here and we're there. But I mean, I think that you, you get the sense that Hungry Heifer is a place. And it, it reminds me a bit of uh, Fuddruckers. Has any of you guys ever been to that? It's Cynthia uh, Garris. And yes, I have been Cynthia to Cynthia Garris, yep. Do you, you're familiar with that, Alex? Yeah, yeah definitely. And do you, want to do you want to describe it, Alex, to our listeners? I guess their whole shtick is that they're a big burger joint. Um... And I yeah, their the shtick is that they're a big burger joint, and I think they have like, like a Mondo Burger or something, right? Don't they have like this like, you know, this like Fun Rucker special where you can get like a fucking burger the size of like your head or something? Um, I think I think they do, but like their their main thing is like it's like custom burgers that have all sorts of different fixings. But the main thing, but the big thing is to sort of prove how fresh the meat is. You can actually look in a window and see the animal being processed into the meat or that. into the patty. Uh, and uh, that, that actually turned one of my friends vegan. Ah, wow. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. His family on their first and only trip to Fuddruckers when I think he was like 14 or 15, he looked through that, took one look through that window. He's like, well, I'm not touching meat again. And damned if he hasn't stayed true to that. And it's been like, almost 30 years. Good for him. Yeah, no, I, I think with the Fuddruckers, I, that you could take the burger yourself and put the toppings on just how you liked it through like a salad bar was different than, say, uh, customizing a Whopper and having the guy fuck up your order. <laughs> yeah. It is right, convenient. every time, or like the, the lettuce looks like it's been wilted three times over. But I mean, with the Hungry Heifer, it, it just feels like an actual place and that the movie keeps on going back to it. And uh, Mick Garris is, is a... Um, either vegetarian or vegan, I believe. Like maybe that was something he he put in the script. I'm not quite sure about that point. I'll have to. Well, that is a running gag because uh, yeah. Brad's grandmother is a vegetarian and is always talking about different alternatives to meat. Um, if I could say some more praise for the hungry heifer, though, there's just a lot of fun little well-observed gags. Like every time the door opens, there's this stock recording of a cow that plays. Uh, it also does something that I love it when horror movies do this. 
where there's some mayhem that happens in the hungry heifer that uses the equipment of a fast food place. Like we, uh, there's a critter that gets flattened and grilled on the grill. There's a critter that falls into the deep, the deep fryer and like comes out all fried and nasty. Oh, and that's, that's a horrific shot. Like it looks like a pink red hot baby coming out of someone. Like and it, it's screaming and like, it's, Oh, yeah. Oh, it, it's disturbing. And so it's, and it's sort of satisfying when you see the bounty hunters, like, and it's just like a Western. The Bounty Hunters quietly come in, they lock the door behind them, and then they just shoot the place oh, up. Yeah. But, but yeah. before they shoot the place up, I like the gag that the one Bounty Hunter is, is still as the playmate at this point, and the the um, the Bounty Hunter that took on the, the shape of the male, he fire, he points his gun regularly, but the one that's the, the playmate, the female, um, the gun kind of points up at an angle, and yeah, I don't like, know if that's a sly erection joke or not, but it's oh, like there's a bit of a grin, I think, from the actress. And and they really blow the shit out of them. And they have green blood. You know, it's not red blood. So, you can, you know, that's OK for PG-13. I don't know why that's such a distinction, but that's stupid. But um, yeah, no, definitely like a phallic reference there with the, the extendo gun. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they get a lot of mileage out of the fact that their gun barrels extend and retract. Right. And, um, but yeah, like you said, well, with the, uh, fast food thing, I mean, you know, restaurants, you got slicers, blenders, deep fryers, you know, get some mileage out of that. And when that one go, when that critter goes in the fryer, you kind of feel bad for a little dude. I mean, that shit looks painful. And you, you get the novelty of a hairless critter, which is actually pretty, uh, terrifying looking, actually. Yeah. One right. I mean, I, it reminded me of a recent experience with, um, one of my dogs, Hermione. She's, I think, kind of a mix of a, I can't think of names right now. I've had I put too much tequila in my coffee. But anyway, she's she's a smaller dog, and when we took her to the groomer, they shaved her a bit too much. So with with her butt, it's like her asshole is just staring at you <laughs> for like a month until it finally grew in. But I was like deeply disturbed. Oh, and I was yeah. like had a had a hidden third eye in the back there. But it was just Real horrific. Freak. What does it have to do with critters? Almost nothing. But just how when you shave an animal, it looks different. But <laughs> You you get some of the subtitle jokes in here, not as it, it seems like about the same amount as the first, and so I applaud them for not overdoing it. Yeah, totally, and I think it works. Like I, you know, the tongue and cheek stuff, like it's, I think it works terrifically here. And also after the the hungry heifer, we have the um, we have the bounty hunter turn into freaking um, the manager, um, Eddie Dizon or Dizon or whatever. Dizon. Uh, that's, that's a good point yeah I, I like that and he's wearing like the woman outfit so there's all these weird like gaps and it doesn't fit right and then, uh, and then he sees a freddy picture and he's like don't turn it into him yeah charlie like no no don't turn into him and holds up the the centerfold so he turns into the centerfold again but damn wouldn't it have been cool if they did have robert england cameo as the bounty hunter you know kill crates bitch yeah. maybe it was like budget or something but i mean certainly you know nightmare and elm street and critters are both new line cinema that's why they could do that that joke pretty easily it, it had to be budget or scheduling because you yes. know robert england would have done that oh, i no. mean if robert england did all those videos to like the blockbuster video stores that said you want to buy all the units of nightmare and elm street five the dream child <laughs> it's uh oh, yeah he could have been i know but it's that was still a cute moment even though you don't see it it seems kind of missing uh it's missing a little bit something but it i mean that that you have the i like the gag about the remote at the end of the first film you know they give the kid a thing if you ever need us you know use this yeah which and clearly when, when either you, had either it had a it's either it's either cheap Arcturian crap, which is why it doesn't work in this movie, or uh, it had a bat or like it didn't have a long battery life, which is why it doesn't work in this movie. Or he used it too often, annoyed the bounty hunters, so they just cut the connection. Oh no, I think it does work though. Because remember, it when... works initially because because uh, they like blow a hole a hole through the side of the house and, and save the grandma from. Well, that's the, more the of a coincidence, really. Bananas, like I thought it was a TV remote. <laughs> And it does look like a TV remote at the time, albeit a small one. I mean, do you Rob, remember some of those old TV remotes? Some of them were pretty damn heavy. They were well, I remember um, if you had a cable box, like a black box, the mm -hmm. remote that was like the size, it was like smaller than like a pack of cigarettes. Like it was a 
tiny little thing. It looked like uh, that's what it reminded me of. It was like you have your big stupid like metal freaking cast iron TV remote, but then your cable box remote was this little tiny little poop poop thing. All this and more on uh, vintage uh, cable cast. I, I just remember it was a big deal when you could get those cheap third party uh, remotes with the glow in the dark buttons. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I still wish they had that in a way because I'm still that the Apple TV remote's the worst thing possible, yeah. and like you, yeah, you always like miss the buttons on it and anyhow. It's everywhere. It slides off the couch. It slides off your leg. It slides everywhere. It's just, it's like they greased the damn thing. <laughs> and we're back, folks, with another episode of Nasty Labs. Nasty Labs. It's a show hosted by me, Kinsey Burke, and my dumbass friend Mark. Nasty this twice-monthly show about game development, Japan life, being nice to people, and hey, maybe a few other things. Nasty Labs is a product of Chuhai Labs Brand Incorporated, and now available for three easy payments of four twenty sixty nine, only on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hey, Lassie, what are you doing here? Timmy's in a well. Sequelcast 2 and Friends is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time, like Harry Potter, Hellraiser, and The Hobbit. And sometimes the hosts talk about video games and TV as well. And now it's part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Oh, Lassie, we don't need to rescue Timmy. He likes the well well enough, I guess. Darth Vader is Luke's father. Lassie, I told you to lay off the spoilers. Speaking uh, of Burger Grease, yeah, you have the Critters in, in this film and Critters 2. Just... It, it really makes them look disgusting eating the burgers. And like, I'm a guy that likes burgers. I eat meat. But the way the critters eat it makes it look repulsive. Oh, I got to say, yeah. Like when, especially um, toward the climax where they lure them into that warehouse with all the burger fixings and like yes. American cheese and ketchup. I'm like, oh. And like, I'm a ketchup fussy person to begin with. Like, I'll like graze them on my fries, but that's really about it. Um, so just seeing like yellow mustard and... All the flappy dap American cheese getting tossed around. I was like, oh, I'm not. I'm not. Mayonnaise tubs, the barbecue oh. sauce. It's it's a wonderfully disgusting scene as they just <laughs> throw all the food, the burger stuff into a pile. And yeah, so, the way they do uh, that with all the food reminds me a little bit of a trauma a bit. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> also, it's like, yeah, no wonder McGarris is a vegetarian. I can tell that this is uh, <laughs> written by a vegetarian. And, and there's actually a lot of um, horror film uh, directors and writers that are vegetarian for whatever reason, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, put put those two together, but yeah, it's. I mean, I, I think horror and humor have things to do with each other. And while I think in the first film the critters were, were more scary, in this one I do like the increased scope that you get a shitload of critters attacking people, especially towards the end. Oh yeah. oh yeah, I mean, like we see dozens of eggs, we get dozens of critters at the end of this. They commit to that, and it's also we talked in the first one about how there's those special effect shots where you wonder how they did it, and in this one, like we have a whole army of r- critter balls like moving around and changing direction, and of course, we also get the big critter ball. Oh, and the big critter ball, like it doesn't read that well from a distance, but there's enough shots where it's effective. I almost think like it's something that would work better in a comic book. Yeah. I mean, in, a, in a comic book, yeah, because you could put eyes and mouths all over it, and, and really it is just sort of a ball covered in puff balls. And every now and then we get like an insert shot of like a bunch of the puppets together snapping their mouths, and, and it helps. It gives it more life. Although overall, I think it's effective. I mean, it's a real object. It has weight. It has mass, so it moves like a real ball. And I do love that shot where it runs over the yeah. one guy, and then we see just the stripped skeleton. But left I wanted a few more. I wanted that. I wanted that thing to rack up more of a body count, though. I mean, okay, that's true. Yeah, you uh, know, like uh, make it a solid four or five people getting critter balled. That'd be cool. Oh, and it's also a cheat because the whole the whole deal with them <clears throat> lowering the critters into the into the refrigerated warehouse where the hungry heifer keeps all of its uh, burger food. Like they load it with explosives, and you know they lure them all in and. A, there's the they, there's this mysterious large critter because the bounty hunter Ugg has kind of disappeared. There's a mysterious large critter that turns out to have been Ugg the whole time, manipulating the swarm. And so the warehouse gets blown up, but then it's the critter ball that comes out of the warehouse. So their plan did absolutely nothing. It's made it worse, actually. Yeah. And but, I was like, really surprised by the final scene. You know, you think everyone's going to lose, and then you see uh... and the ball is almost on top of them. The ball is almost on top of them, and then basically the the spaceship does a kamikaze. I was not expecting that. 
Yeah, and we see Charlie yeah. in the cockpit. I'm a bounty hunter. And you almost think, oh, well, that's going to be one of the other bounty hunters shape-shifted. No, that was really Charlie. Also, and they really play it for uh, the tragedy of someone dying. And until at the end, it's kind of like a G.I. Joe reveal. Oh, it was in my parachute all along. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, he's coming through town. Can someone help me out of this parachute? Like, so, <laughs> like, I don't think it's too much of a cheat having him come back. Oh, and one thing about Charlie, I do like it when, because Brad, you know, he misses Charlie. And he talks about, where'd you go, Charlie? And we even see that newspaper, local man vanishes mysteriously. And when he finds out Charlie's been in space, you know, uh, Charlie's like, well, you know, I mean, out there, I'm somebody. I got a job. I got prospects. And he's like, well, and and his alcoholism is brought up. He's like, oh, I don't do that anymore. But he says that like somebody who's still struggling with their addiction, which I really yeah, like. That's but a it's a weird, it's a weird ending because because uh, Harv, the uh, the sheriff, he decides to leave town with Brad when Brad goes back to his his family. But before he leaves, though, Harv tosses his sheriff badge to Charlie. But there, there's a problem, though. It's established that the town elects its sheriffs. And the reason he's not sheriff in this movie is because he lost the election because he was talking about the critters. Right. So, so he has no authority to make Charlie sheriff. <laughs> right. So it's kind of interesting because it's like, so he hands the badge. It's like, it's like old West rules. Like whoever holds the badge is literally the sheriff. But. They kind of prove early on that's not the case. But he does come in blazing with two six-shooters and lights up a few critters, which is fucking awesome. That scene made me happy. Definitely. Oh, and I wanted to point out, so we, we talked about how there's some uh, pretty good special effects. They reuse some space process shots, or so some space shots from the first film and this film. The um, the alien that gives them their mission, what I love about that big-headed puppety alien is it is effectively the same special effect as the language instructor from Battlefield Earth, which came out like a, a, about over a decade after this film. But it's a much better special effect in this film than it is in Battlefield Earth. Yeah. Battlefield Earth, uh, yes. Stupid humans. But, uh, any other any other thoughts about Critters too? Uh, uh, fun to watch. Um, yeah, this is just is this is a movie that's easy to like. It's it's charming uh, in its way, and like it, it builds its own little universe. Oh, we talked in the first one about how like the the Johnny Steele song, who again nobody's like, hey, there's Johnny Steele, even yeah. though he's still wearing that face. Right. But like in this one, it's that hungry heifer jingle, which is a long jingle that they keep cutting back to to keep hearing. They play the full version over the credits, and I would definitely recommend listening to it. Maybe we'll put it at the end of this episode. Maybe we won't. We'll keep you guessing. But there's one weird thing in that jingle where, like, they keep ending mm. every verse with, you know, the hungry heifer where we don't serve you, no steer, which is weird. Is that a, is the joke supposed to be that the line should be, we don't serve you, no bull? Right. But or is it use... like, we won't steer you, Ron? I don't, but no bull makes more sense. Yeah, like, um, I, like is that is that the joke? Like, I'm trying to understand why they went with steer and not bull. Is the joke that they didn't use bull? Or, I don't know, but I, I do appreciate you get to hear the whole thing over the end credits because in the movie, the the song, while it's audible, it's pretty buried deep within the mix of characters walking around and, and people talking. So you can actually hear the whole damn thing. Uh, now, now, do I like its placement when the end credits start? Not really. Like, yeah, it probably kind should of, be a little bigger. A little later, but um, it's fine. I think overall, you know, the score for this was more cutesy than the first one. I kind of prefer the electronic score of the first one to, to this one by Nicholas Pike, but um, it's okay. But um, maybe the no steer thing is like they're actually a clandestine, like, you know, Beyond Burger joint. And they've been covertly giving people vegetarian burgers. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be <laughs> like a great... Or like that's where it turns out that the plan doesn't work. They weren't meat burgers. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. So, um, you know, I give Critters Two sequel. Yes, I think it's it's a more fun movie to watch than the first one. Not that the first one had a, a lot of baggage with the plot or anything, but like you get to see all the weird people in the town, and it's fun to see the characters uh, make a return. 
I wish M. Emmett Walsh would have done this. I wonder if it was a scheduling conflict or budget or something. But it would, it would have been nice to see him back. I missed him. Yeah, it would have been nice. Um, Barry Corbin, like I said, he's. I just feel like he's doing a Ben Johnson impression. But he's fine. He's, you know, it, it works. Yeah, it's a sequel yes for me. I really enjoyed watching this. Yeah, definitely sequel. Yes, this is a. It's like I said, it's easy to like. It doesn't ask. It doesn't. It's a very undemanding film. It's very. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the thing you expect to see on the box. Very undemanding. <laughs> a sequel that won't challenge you, raised critic. <laughs> this feels like the kind of movie that would play like on the USA up all night or something. Oh, it's, totally. Oh yeah, it, it was a it was practically a staple. Like the, this one, this one more so than the first was always running on the Sci Fi Channel. This and the fourth one, for some reason, would always get paired up. Hmm. Inter- although I remember when we'll talk about this next time. But for the the third one, when Titanic came out on video, they re released Critters Three with the big uh, uh, box art that says starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh uh, yeah, which is true, but. What did I use the star? <laughs> that misleading. Well, I mean, they did the same thing where they reran those like five episodes of of Family Ties he was on uh, endlessly when that movie became a hit. Yes, and when uh, when Rocky came out and was popular, they re-released the Woody Allen movie Bananas with starring Sylvester Stallone, even though he's in it for like thirty seconds as a guy that mugs Woody Allen. They they should have re-released that episode of the Muppet Show with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. He's which uh, does show up in Rocky uh, Three, I think. <laughs> yep. All right, so yeah, um, time for pitch a sequel. If Critters Two is the main course, I would mine would be called uh, Critters Three: The Dessert. It would take place on. Uh, so we we take the premise. Let's say all the critters are removed from Earth in this one. We'll take them at their word. This would be Critters 3, where you go back to the asteroid prison planet of uh, from the original, and and you see there's a something kind of mysterious. You know, maybe the opening credits are like a like a French uh, alien chef, like a, like uh-huh. an alien like, like an alien Julia Child or something, is uh, throwing some stuff in and grabs some critter's eggs. So Harvey uh, Corman from the Star Wars Holiday Special. Yeah, yeah basically Harvey Corman from the Star Wars Holiday Special. Whipster! Whipster! Whip, whipster! <laughs> it throws in, you know, a few critter's eggs by accident and doesn't crack them. Like some, There would be some kind of Rube Goldberg thing where these eggs uh, are, are put in without um, exposing the embryo. And the critters get loose on the prison planet Again, but they wait to hatch until they're on the prison planet. There's like a, a meeting of dignitaries from like all the planets to, to show off, you know, why this prison planet is the best. So it, it'll be kind of a political kind of uh, assassination thriller, JFK kind of thing. And the critters will pop out of the dessert. This is why it's called Critters 3, the dessert. Just desserts. That's what you call it. Critters 3, just desserts. <laughs> You've stolen both of my titles now. <laughs> that, that's something that's interesting is that apparently the critters grow really fast and eat a lot, but their eggs do take two years to gestate. Yeah. In this one, it would be heated up because the eggs would be in the oven. You'd have increased oh, heat yeah. with the, would be you know, the advanced, the advanced space prison ovens. <laughs> uh, Thrasher. So I'm going to do uh, Critters 3, Leftovers, uh, where in, in this one, I like, the, I like the idea of like a meat substitute where uh, the critters, so like some, some, some krites t- take refuge. They're like, okay, well, we're going to need, you know, they're being, they're being hunted. They're being exterminated all over the galaxy because they won't stop eating people. So they go to this planet that has this super huge industry where like it's the planet that all the galaxy's meat comes from. But this is the catch. Turns out it's not really meat. It's a vegetable-based meat substitute, and it's all processed by robots. So the critters are now trapped on a planet where they literally can't eat anything. The only the only meat on the planet is like this alien foreman who just kind of supervises the robots in the factory and, and, and repairs them every now and then. So 
So for like the first third of the movie, it's just him being besieged. It's all very, very tense. But then a ship comes to deliver fresh vegetable matter from an agricultural planet and pick up a consignment of the processed meat substitute. Now you got a whole cast of characters and a functioning spaceship. So it becomes a bloodbath as the critters try to find their way on the ship. And the way it's going to end is they let the critters get on the, the get on the ship. They actually lure them in, and in fact, one of the characters might sacrifice themselves by getting the critters to chase them into the ship. The, the thing is, though, the critters chase them into the refrigerated section of the ship, and they all get flash frozen. <laughs> so that'll be the end. And so, you know, at afterwards, the bounty hunters will show up and will just hit all the frozen critters with hammers, shattering them all. <laughs> Very satisfying. And of course, yeah, of course, the bounty hunter will be there, too. Very nice. And Alex. So my pitch of sequel is going to be um, uh, Critters 3, The Ballad of Conrad Crit. Um, uh, there's one surviving crit after uh, everything that goes on in Critters 2, and he sends a distress beacon to the, to the, to the Critter planet. And um, a, uh, a, a peace delegate of the Crit planet comes to planet Earth, and they... They have a they have a crit to English translator, and they um, delegate that they want to have a um, a peaceful relationship with Earth. And what they do is that they introduce all this alien technology, and what they do is that they like have this whole like uh, like agrarian reform uh, plan, so they can like you know feed more livestock and cattle, and there's like farm subsidies so they can produce more hamburgers. And uh, what it does is it totally rejuvenates the economy, and we have like this great like utopian. Um, you know, crit human, um, you know, alliance going on, and like we have like sustainably farmed beef at all the restaurants and shit. Um, however, all this time, Scott uh, Grimes has been harboring this uh, this this crit grudge and um, goes all taxi driver and assassinates Conrad Crit and, and tears <laughs> everything asunder, and um, everything reverts to this kind of like Mad Max X dystopia where where crits and humans duke it out in like the Thunderdome. Just Would the crits have no, no, they want to armor? eat us for dinner or eat us for dinner. It's a complicated language. <laughs> Not me, Conrad Crit. He has like, like you know, bifocals and stuff and wears a tie. He's the brain gremlin from Gremlins. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> we want what you have, civilization. And Scott Grimes like, emerges from the crowd with like a bandana and like a cut-off sleeve camouflage shirt. He's like, die, Conrad! Yeah, a lot of different ideas for Critter sequels there. Uh, moving on to what you're watching. Uh, Thrasher, do we have a scene for this movie we're going to do? Or Regrettably, no? we do not. There's we do no not. Okay, really that's good, fine. Uh, I figure we'll all just do an Eddie D's and impression. Yeah, <laughs> that's, at the end, we'll do that. That's fine. Um, so I watched a little bit of a, a show on, on Disney+. Plus. They have so many original series. There is one called Marvel's 616. And I, I don't know why that number is significant, but it's basically a done. Okay. So Dimension 616 is the dimension that the core Marvel Earth is in, in Marvel Comics. Gotcha. So this is a documentary a series that has not been renewed for a second season yet, but the one that jumped to mind, and I, I'm glad I watched it, was called The Marvel Method. Um, it's about Dan Slott is the writer. I'm not sure who the artist is, but they had the heady task of uh, doing an Iron Man 2020 strip in the year 2020 and it goes about how um dan slot and his his partners to do that issue or dan slot had been working for marvel since the 90s when they still did the marvel method meaning the script isn't fully fleshed out before the artist starts working on it so it's more of a true collaboration as opposed to how dc comics and nowadays how all comic uh, places pretty much do it where the writer does a, a whole script like a screenplay uh, specifying exactly what's in the panels you know it's that specific most of the times and, uh, and then the artist draws it but the marvel method is something more organic and it was neat to see kind of the difference of of how they do things but also how modern technology makes such a collaboration easier than it used to be very neat it was the, there are two episodes that are definitely worth seeing is the first episode about the history of the japanese spider-man live action series 
But then episode four, The Lost and Found, where it's all about comedian Paul Shear trying to lead a revival of this obscure Marvel comic from the uh, early 90s called Brute Force. Oh, really? That's yeah, about superpowered animals in power armor. It is hilarious. Oh, Jesus. Is he doing it as a gag or he's actually trying to pitch it? It's it's it is a gag, but he's very serious and he does get people from Marvel and Disney to seriously answer ridiculous questions he has <laughs> about developing these characters into a major film franchise. I'll have to see it. I loved Paul Shear on, on his podcast stuff now and then way back in Human oh, Giant. Yeah. And uh yeah, so that's really neat. I mean, so the the topics they cover are pretty diverse. Like the the last episode um that started to autoplay and then I stopped it was called Spotlight about Marvel doing like stage productions on characters like Squirrel Girl. Like it's quite odd. Like I guess they're trying to um float some kind of weirder ideas to see how people are uh caught into it on, on different um formats. Interesting. So uh Thrasher. What have you been watching? All right, so I watched uh, I watched my favorite uh, 1980s sci-fi romantic comedy rock opera, Earth Girls Are Easy. Oh man, Jim Carrey, Jeff Goldblum, Comedy Central played that all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, it's it was created uh, and co-written by Julie Brown. It was supposed to star her, but she got replaced by Gina Davis on her own movie. But then she just took the best friend role. But yeah, it was Jim Carrey's first movie. Uh, Damon Wayans is in it. So like you know, this is what's weird. It's it's, it's that it's, it's almost like a SNL reunion. Because Damon Wayans was briefly on SNL. Charles Rocket is in this movie. He was on SNL. Sadly, he's no longer with us. Uh, Mike McKeon was on S- was would later be on SNL, uh, but is also in this movie. Uh, but yeah, and Jeff Goldblum, uh, yeah, uh, Jim Carrey, Damon Wayans, and Jeff Goldblum play the aliens, and it's this 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 goofy movie about a uh, about a manicurist played by Gina Davis who's engaged to a doctor, but they're having some uh, some romantic troubles. And one night she finds out he's cheating on him and kicks him out. And then the next morning, a UFO crashes in her swimming pool that has three horny aliens uh, on board. And that is the dumbest premise for a very fun, very smart movie. Mm-hmm. And like the and damned if it doesn't have some amazing special effects. Efforts were made to make the special effects look good. Also, the opening scene features some of the first CGI uh, in a film. Damn. And uh, I just recall this, these sequences where they're talking to each other in sound effects. Like, there's some really strange stuff in there. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 sort of natural mimics. So the way they sort of learn English is by cop by like by copying things they've heard or seen on answering machine messages and, and TV and whatnot. And there's actually a great bit where one of them they they're flipping through channels and pass uh, the nutty professor with Jerry Lewis. And one of them just memorizes all of the buddy love cool guy lines and then uses them throughout the film <laughs> in pretty appropriate ways. But there's there's just a lot going on. It's very it's very light. It's very fun. It also it 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 also it has it has a joke that like in in the moment comes off as very homophobic, but when you line it up with the climax of the film, like isn't. And I kind of like that. Hmm. Cause like, like one of the things the, the aliens, so the aliens are like psychic and they have this thing they call like the love touch where like they can basically like touch you and like you get, you get like horny. And so there's a scene where like they're trapped in a, a police car. So they just love touch the police officers who like immediately start like all practically making out with each other. And you just, it's, it's and, and like, it's sort of set up like it's going to be a gay panic joke. But then later we find out that they're going to get married. But then at the end of the movie, you find out the love touch doesn't work unless you have feelings for the other person. So those cops were secretly in love with each other the whole time. And the aliens just liberated their true feelings, which I, I actually thought was kind of sweet. That's sweet. It's neat. Um, yeah. I've never seen this movie the whole way through. I just thought, on clips on TV um, growing up. You definitely watch it all the way through. And, and Julie Brown does, you know, she does get to sing. She gets her own number. Uh, uh, the, the I'm a blonde number is hilarious. It's just this sort of show stopping number. That's just in the middle of the movie. It is really almost arbitrary because it has nothing to do with the plot. 
but it's it's hilarious. It's full of a lot of really like clever like jokes that you've got to kind of like really pay attention to uh, to follow. The other thing uh, that <laughs> that I rather uh, that I rather uh, like in this and there's a, there's I think there's a, a lot to like. Um, oh, crud! What was it? There's see the the film has left me over has left me overwhelmed. Frankly. Well, there you go. I have to check it out. Um, Alex, what have you been watching? So I um I have a soft spot for um, Italian I guess Euro crime is the genre Euro crime films from the 70s uh, mostly Italian and you know they're just a lot of fun even if the even when the story is a little weak and the you know narrative's not that great they're still fun and violent to watch um, this one Revolver um, you've got Fabio Testi who is just you know royalty in the 70s Italian crime genre. Um, and you always have to have your proverbial fish out of water star you don't expect. So this one's got Oliver Reed of all people. Uh, score by none other than the incontestably great Ennio Morricone, um, and the director of what I consider to be one of the best non-Leone spaghetti westerns of all time, The Big Gun Down. Um, but this movie sucks. It's not that good. There's like three people who die. All right. It's mostly just this, like, really slow-moving kidnapping movie where, like, Oliver Reed's doing, like, a very drowsy Taken thing. Um, and Fabio Testi's, like, the like the quirky criminally busts out of jail to help him. And this just goes nowhere. And I remember I've been wanting to see this movie for, like, a decade. And I ordered it off Amazon a million years ago. And they sent me the freaking Guy Ritchie revolver instead. And the girl I was dating at the time tried to convince me it was good. Um, I mean, there's interesting things in it, but it's not that great a movie. Um, so since then, I just kind of given up on it. But I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I want my 70s revolver movie. And I got it. I watched it. And it was kind of dumb. And the best part of it was, um, you know, Marconi's score. And they had some guy, Dub Oliver Reed, doing a bad Oliver Reed voice. And it's just, ugh, yeah. So usually I use this section to praise something, but I'm going to be a little contrary and use it to take a shit on something. All right, then. And the movie for people to avoid. What's the name of it again? Something entertaining. Go elsewhere. Oh, I just remember the other thing that I I had forgot to mention about Earth Girls Are Easy. It is also one of the few actual on-screen appearances of Evangeline, who is just this Los Angeles character who, if you've ever seen establishing shots of Los Angeles in Hollywood, you'll always see this picture of a blonde with her boobs out on a billboard that just says Evangeline. Well, the woman from that billboard is in this movie as herself. She she is the definition of a person who's famous for being famous. (laughs) There you go. Pretty neat. So uh, next time on Sequel Cast 2, we'll be looking at Critters 3. Does this one have a subtitle? I don't think it does. Oh, it says you are what you eat. Hey. Um, I can only hope. On the box, but we'll see if it says it in the actual opening credits. It says, uh, what does it say? First they destroyed a farm, then they destroyed a town. Now they're ready to do some real damage. <laughs> oh, Got to yeah. escalate. With the classic kind of thing of the the monster tearing through the city skyline, it's like it's ripping through wrapping paper or something. So bye bye Grover's Bend, I guess. Oh no! I can't wait. It's been a while. I think I think the third film is the one I've seen the least. So I am looking forward to to, to reevaluating this yeah. with fresh eyes. Yep, a New Line Cinema filmed uh, three and four, you know, nearly back to back with like really terribly low budgets. So I'm, I'm curious to see how they look, if the Chiodo brothers are involved at all with this one, if they, yeah, if they use stock footage. I'm, I'm curious. And also the DiCaprio thing. I've never seen him act as a small child. I've seen him in what he, What's Eating Gilbert great, but this is quite a bit before then. He's easy to spot because he basically just looks like little Leo. Yeah, I've seen the pictures and it's kind of creepy. Yeah. So very cool. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T uh, listen to the show on Stitcher at Stitcher.com we're also on Spotify and you know any place you can get a podcast you can get SequelCast 2 and uh, leave us a, a nice review uh, on the Apple Podcast app in particular all that stuff helps 
I've um, using um, Chartable.com. I've figured out we have a lot of listeners from the uh, Philippines cool. and from Germany, kind of all over the world. I, I assume expats are listening to the show, but perhaps not. But I mean, yeah, we're welcome. Uh, we love any of our listeners as long as you're not assholes. I assume you're not. So please leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to. All that always uh, helps. Um, Thrasher. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, you can uh, read a lot of my read and purchase certainly purchase a lot of the gaming books I've written and or illustrated uh, by just searching for uh, William T. Thrasher on DriveThroughRPG.com. Also, our theme song is written and performed by Mark with the C. Check out his stuff at MarkWithTheC.com. And Alex, you can follow me on Twitter at CranNebula1914. And um, drop by my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project. We just passed our 100 subscriber line. Woo! So if any of you are out there, thank you. And if you aren't there, subscribe. Join the fun. There's a lot of weird, cool, crazy, neat, off-the-wall shit. And um, there's much more in store. So, yeah, check it out. So what's your favorite comment you've received on YouTube? Oh, um... I, I get, I, it's funny, the video I made about um, Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I get the, I get like the sweetest, most heartfelt replies and I get the most hateful, angry replies <laughs> as if I am like this, like, you know, champion of Roman Polanski. But in all actuality, I'm just kind of bummed out that a um, pregnant woman got murdered. You think uh, people would kind of, you know get that but whatever um i welcome all comments good and bad but um i had really actually i had a very healthy tete-a-tete with someone who disagreed with me and we actually hashed out a healthy dialogue of contrast on the internet a healthy dialogue all places yeah um it was so rewarding so you know good bad neutral whatever you know bring 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 the feedback man um i appreciate it Definitely. You know, I'm. we were talking about DiCaprio going to be in next week's film with The Critters 3, and I forgot this fact, but he actually was all set to be the lead in American Psycho before dropping out to do The Beach. This is when Oliver Stone was attached as the director, and that would have been a much better, or not, not better, a much different film. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, um, Dreyfus put all his chips on inserts instead of Jaws. <laughs> He's like, inserts, this is going to be the one. That's how I'm going to get an Oscar. Not this short movie. <laughs> and what I believe, uh, Chevy Chase turned down Forrest Gump. Oh, Jesus. And I think he could have been quite good in that, actually. Um, everything. Um, and did a lot of other things. But, um, you oh, know, yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's I, I like the comparison. I mean, I'm obsessed with Sylvester Stallone, so of course this is from him. But he said, you know, making a movie is kind of like playing craps. Like, you don't know what's going to work until uh, the thing comes out and the public reacts to it. Right. And, and then also, if one does well, like, oh, we might as well do sequels because that, that did well. Yeah, and also, like, you don't start a movie being, like, thinking it's going to suck. You want it to be good, you know? Everyone wants it to be good. Right. Um, I mean, people are working ridiculous hours, and, yeah, it's a big collaboration. I, I've seen inserts, and that movie is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so who starred in inserts instead? Um, it was, oh, no, Richard Dreyfuss is in it. Um, oh, he is? Okay. Bob Hoskins is in it, and it's just this huh. very long, very boring, very go-nowhere um, piece about this guy who was in motion pictures, and now he shoots, like, you know, dirty movies on the down, on the down low from his, like, cavernous Hollywood mansion at, like, the dawn of talkies, and it's just, like, the, it's so fucking boring. I, uh, it just, it's like watching someone peel a banana in slow motion. It's just, like, the most boring thing in the fucking world. You might like this last bit of trivia, Thrasher. You know that Tim Curry was originally approached to play the part of the bad guy in a Scooby-Doo movie? No, but damn, that would have been cool. And Tim Curry says, I love Scooby-Doo, but I really hate Scrappy-Doo. Does this movie have to have Scrappy-Doo in it? And James Gunn, the writer, said yes. And uh, and then Tim Curry says, okay, then I cannot do the project. The fact that Scrappy's the villain. Spoilers! Uh, yeah. has nothing to do with it. Although Tim, I believe Tim Curry does appear as like a guy named like Ravenscroft in like Scooby Doo and the Witch's Ghost. Yeah, I think he might have done a few of those uh, direct video features. But that, um, I, I really hope that's true because when I read that, I just smiled. I was like, oh, 
Scrappy Doo and Tim Curry, and he went with Scrappy Doo. Yeah, yeah Ben I, Ravenscroft. That's who he played in Scooby Doo and the Witches. Witches well, in, in Scooby Doo, that part is played by Rowan Atkinson, who apparently is very. Um, it had a lot of meetings with James Gunn about his character, which for a Scooby-Doo movie, I was like, really? But I don't know. I'm not an actor, really. So there you go. Still, though, I mean, if, if Tim Curry's on the table and Scrappy-Doo's on the table, yeah. I, I mean, come on. Right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Okay. So anyway, next week, Critters 3, You Are What You Eat for Sequel Cast 2. This is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. <laughs> this is Alex. Saying, hey, you gotta go in there. There's monsters. You gotta do something. Uh. Hey, I'm critter. Gonna eat your food. Gonna sleep on your couch. Never gonna pay rent. If you stick your head in a bucket of burgers and finish the whole thing, you get a, a cow patty for free. At yeah. the hungry heifer, or we don't serve you no steer. Hey, you birds, come get.